0: Father, would you help us to more fully believe what we just confessed? That we would confess right along with Peter that we have no other place we can go. We have no other hope, no other source of wisdom, no other source of strength, no other truth, nothing else but your words of life. Where else can we go? You indeed, Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You are our life. So would you receive this confession and receive our worship, that it is worship of you in our need? We're glorifying you. Help us this morning, even as we come to your word, that you would indeed teach us by your spirit that your people might be built up and encouraged and equipped. We love you. Help us to love you. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Help us to praise you. We come in your name to meet with you. Receive us, please, and speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you today. Um, I just want to briefly celebrate um, one thing this morning. Um, officially, as of Thursday, we can legally occupy this building. Uh, what I mean is, which is awesome, we've been occupying it legally the whole time. What I mean is that, like, wait a minute, what have we been doing? Uh, we, uh, I think it's right. Maybe, I don't know if Joe knows, but I'll look at Joe. Uh, he gave me the thumbs up. Um, we officially got like the city did their final walkthroughs for all of their stuff. And while there's a few projects yet to complete, clearly some floors and things like that, um, the the official like occupancy has been given for this building uh, for us to use it in the way we are called to use it here and on the second floor, which is awesome. We just want to celebrate that because... Um, uh, a year ago, we were like part way into raising funds to be able to do this project. So that's a huge praise God. Amen? Um, amen. So we want to celebrate that. Um, and we haven't totally made plans yet, but we'll probably do some kind of like potluck celebration because this is what you do at a church. Um, you have potluck to celebrate God's goodness to you. So we'll do something like that. I haven't talked to anyone else about that. So if you're on staff or on the elder team and you're like, we didn't put that on the calendar, I just said it right now. So I apologize going around the team. Um, Let's get after it this morning. Grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team are coming around and can get you a Bible so you can follow along. And if you do not own a Bible, please take one of these home with you. Uh, We're continuing to work our way through Luke's gospel. Um, And maybe you haven't noticed, but I feel like Luke has slowed way down. Partly that's our fault. We could cover larger chunks. But partly, it's, if you look at 23, or 22, 23, and 24 of Luke, it slows way down as Jesus moves toward the cross. And so we're going to just pick up where we left off, read a few verses together. We're going to start uh, Luke 22, starting in verse 39. And uh, as you're finding your way there, there's parallel accounts of this little section, starting in verse 39 that we'll read today, in all three other Gospels. Mar- Matthew 26... They leave the upper room, the disciples with Jesus, and they leave the city to the east and they go to the Mount of Olives to pray. Uh, Mark 14, they leave the upper room and they leave the city and go to the east to the Mount of Olives to pray. John 18, they go from the upper room to a little garden in the hills to the east of the city where they go to pray. Each one of the gospel writers highlights this um, happening, this event Looking at the life of Jesus from different angles and different perspectives, and writing to different audiences, as each of the gospel writers does, each one zeroes in on this part of the story. All that Jesus said was going to happen was now happening. Jesus will pray, Jesus will be betrayed, he'll be arrested, his disciples will deny him and will flee, Jesus will be mocked, beaten, and killed. This is happening now. It's all coming to fruition now. And so all four of the gospel writers give their perspective, if you will, on this kind of pivotal event. So we're going to read our portion of Luke this morning, and then we'll see what it has for us. Luke chapter 22, we're going to read this morning, verses 39 through 46. I invite you to follow along in your copies of God's Word, and it'll be on the screen as well. This is the Word of the Lord for us. Hear it. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's holy word for us. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been motivated towards something, but maybe didn't have the skill or strength or ability in some way to actually reach that goal? Or maybe you just haven't hit that goal yet. Maybe it's a sales goal at work. Now we're in the first part of the year, and so the end of the year is behind you. Maybe you didn't quite hit that goal at the end of the year like you were hoping. Maybe there's more you could have done or maybe the economy just wasn't favorable for you but you didn't quite reach your goal. Maybe you have a personal goal to save some money or to do a project and yet something else more pressing has come along. The car needed something or your water heater dies or whatever and your plans, your goal to do a thing now can't happen. Or maybe like in my case, one of your very simple goals is to just do a regular old pull-up but you can't do one. Not yet. Let me illustrate what a pull-up should look like (laughs) and what my pull-up looks like. Right? The Gospel of Matthew's account of his time in the Garden of Jesus says these words. Uh, Luke doesn't record this, but Matthew does. Matthew says this. uh, This is Jesus speaking when he finds his disciples sleeping. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, You and I can get stronger, we can work on technique, we can build relationships and we can track down possible sales leads, we can chase our goals and there's all kinds of strategies to do so. But the reality is, and I think something we need to grasp and be 100% okay with is this, that we all have limitations of some kind. Every one of us. And despite in this room even right now, the diverse mix of gifts and abilities Skills happening here right now. The people sitting around you that I asked you to say good morning to that you don't know who they are have skills and abilities and gifts that are probably like, I'll say it in the best possible way, enviable. Like, wow, you can do that right here. People sitting around you. Some are faster, some are stronger, some are more artistic, some are more strategic. And at the same time, all of us, because we are human beings, are limited we are finite, not infinite. So let me just burst your bubble here this morning. You cannot be anything you want to be. You can't do everything that you could possibly dream. Sorry if that wrecks some of your personal inspiration mantras, but that's reality. There is an inherent weakness in our nature because we are created beings. And I think we see that loud and clear in our text today human nature has built into it limitations weakness even in their even our very perfect form if you will at the very beginning when god made adam and he made eve they were made in god's image everything was good and yet they were still created still limited we see it in the disciples And we even see it in the human nature of the fully God and fully man Jesus, which we'll come to here in a second. So that's where we're going to focus our attention today in Luke, in these few verses. Here's the big idea for today. The flesh is weak, but Jesus overcomes, and in Him we overcome. Let me say that again. The flesh is weak, but Jesus overcomes, and in Him we overcome. That's how I want to look at our text today. All through the Scriptures, especially all through the Gospels, we hear Jesus' own words giving instructions and commands to His disciples. And our passage today is no exception. Jesus uses some directional command language today. Twice in our passage, Jesus tells His disciples to pray. That's do language. But He doesn't just give them empty instructions. The commands we read from Jesus and all throughout the Scriptures, the imperatives, the things we are called to do, are always anchored to indicatives, always anchored to done. So when Jesus says do something, it's anchored to something that's done. I just want us to understand that so we don't walk away from a passage like this or read a passage like this and it's like, well, I should just pray harder. That's the answer to the, that's not the answer to the text. There's, there's work to be done but the do is always anchored to the done. Let me explain what I mean by that. Every command in Scripture is tied to Jesus in its fulfillment and empowered by Jesus so that we who are called to faith in Jesus by the Holy Spirit can now walk by the Spirit in this life that He's called us to. So Jesus both fulfills and empowers all that He commands so that in Him and through Him you and I might walk in all that He calls us to. As Paul says in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm setting this all up because I want us to understand as we talk about our big idea that the flesh is weak. Jesus is the one who overcomes weakness. And in Him, we too overcome. These are not like at-odds things. I want us to see this beautiful kind of discongruent reality that we live in. And I think there's two displays of the overcoming power of Jesus here in our text in these eight verses. Two things I want to look at from Luke 22 today. One, Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of kindness. And two, Jesus prays, so that we can pray. Let's look at the first one. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath. There's a, a line in a song that is often sung, kind of a traditional New Year's, end of the year, ball-dropping song. Auld Lang Syne. Should all acquaintance be forgotten and never brought to mind? Right? You know it? Someone's like, no, I don't, I don't know that. It's all right. You don't have to. I'm old. The, the original poem is like from the early 1700s, and then it was put to music, so it's older than I am. Not by much. But there's a line at the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that says, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for the sake of all lang Syne. The idea being, a cup of kindness is like a toast. It's raising a glass. It's an offering of goodwill and hope for the future, for joy and happiness. It happens at weddings all the time, right? Best man stands up, tells an awkward story about him and the groom in high school, then invites everyone to raise a glass to the happy couple. What are you doing in that? You're lifting a glass of joy and happiness and future goodwill. I want good for you, and I'm raising a glass good for you. I want that for you. That's Raising a cup of kindness, if you will. And so I just want to borrow that idea of a cup of kindness that we have in our understanding as a contrast to the cup that Jesus is talking about in Luke 22. Look at verse 39. They went to a familiar place, as was Jesus' custom, with his disciples. So they've been to this place many times before. Verse 40 tells us that his disciples, um, he tells his disciples, hey, wait here and pray with me. We'll come back to that in a minute. And now Luke doesn't tell us this, but John's account of this, John's gospel tells us that this is the time when Judas parts ways with the rest of the disciples, because this is a familiar place. They took the Passover in a place that nobody was expecting, so Judas couldn't betray him there, but now they were going to a familiar place that all the disciples knew. They've been here before. So Judas goes off and gathers the soldiers needed to betray Jesus. Verse 41 Jesus leaves his disciples. He says, here, stay here and pray. And he goes on a little further. Luke says it's a stone's throw. So however far you think you can throw a rock, that's about how far Jesus left them. He kneels down, Luke tells us, and he prays. And this is what Jesus prays. Verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The cup that Jesus is talking about here is not a cup of kindness. Jesus is referring to the cup of God's wrath. Now, the picture of God's wrath and a cup or the accumulation, if you will, of God's righteous anger, we see it all over the Scriptures. It's God's holy anger toward God sin and rebellion in fact God's anger burns so hot against sin is how it's described and that anger or that just wrath fills up a cup until that cup is full and then his anger is poured out in judgment here's a few examples of that the book of Judges has multiple places where we read that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel That's an interesting word picture. His anger burns. And all through Judges, other nations come in and plunder God's people in God's judgment because His anger burned against sin. Isaiah 51, the scripture that Mel read earlier, the prophet Isaiah is reminding the people of Israel to wake up from their sleeping. Wake up. Remember, you remember what it was like to drink from the cup of God's judgment, don't you? They know. They know their history. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, you've tasted His judgment. Drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. The prophet Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. See the picture? They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Judgment on Israel, judgment on Judah, judgment on the nations. That's the picture we have given through Scripture of how God handles his just and righteous anger towards sin and rebellion. Psalm 75. The Psalms are the nice verses, right? They're the, they're the ones we put on coffee mugs. Psalm 75. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment. Putting down one and lifting up another. Here it is. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, Well, mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Right? So, all throughout history, God has executed judgment. Sometimes Israel was judged and conquered by other nations, and sometimes the pagan nations were judged by God, and God's people conquered them. Sometimes, like Sodom, God deals with it himself and rains down fire from the sky. And sometimes, like Egypt, God swallows up the armies of Pharaoh in the sea. There are times all throughout history when God acts in righteous judgment and doles out some kind of punishment for sin, applied at a specific time and a specific place. But in every instance in Scripture, even when God is acting justly, it was never God's full wrath for all of sin until its appointed time when God righteously executes judgment on the wicked. Now, why am I talking about this? It's a great way to start our morning, right? (laughs) Judgment and wrath and fiery anger. Here's some things it tells us actually about God. One, it tells us that God is good and righteous, meaning God doesn't let wickedness go. And that's a good thing. We want God to be just. We don't want Him to like say, it's okay, Some, some bad things are fine. We don't want a God like that. God is good and righteous. Sin will always be dealt with in His perfect time. That's a good thing. But two, we also learn this, that God is not hot-headed. He's slow to anger. Over and over again, that moniker, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is the one that the Scriptures give to God, who is righteous and just and deals with all sin. He is slow to anger. He doesn't lash out. He is patient. By the way, that's also a good thing. God's wrath is always just and is perfectly and patiently applied. I want us to understand that now as we come to understanding what Jesus is wrestling with here in the garden when he has to drink from this cup. Because that's what Jesus is praying about. Father, remove this cup from me. I don't think Jesus is worried about dying. He's been talking about death for years with his disciples. He's okay facing death. It's the wrath of God that is unbearable to Jesus. Jesus said it himself. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I pick it back up. But Jesus is preparing himself to face exposure to the full heat of God's righteous anger. He's preparing to drink the full cup of God's wrath for sin. Every drop down to the dregs. Like the leftovers. The silt in the bottom of the... Not just the cup, but the barrel. He drinks it all the way down. Every last drop. And so Jesus, according to His, his humanity, is saying that this is a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought to face the wrath of a good and just God. If there was another way, Jesus prays, that would be the way I would choose. But there is no other way. And he knows this. So even in the weakness of his humanity, he submits his will to the Father and says, I will drink that cup. Now, as an aside... You might read this and go, well, are the Son and the Father at odds here now? What's happening? And I don't think so. I don't think that God the Son and God the Father are at odds, and and here's why. We are seeing here, I think very clearly, the weakness and limitations of the human nature of God the Son. Take a step back. The, The biblical theology we're dealing with here is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we know that God in His perfection, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God, eternally existing in three persons. They are of one being and one essence. And they share one perfect and divine will. There is no confusing of the persons, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and no dividing of the substance that is God. Okay? We just need to understand that. And we also know <clears throat> that God the Son The second person of the triune Godhead took on himself a fully human nature. God created humanity and human nature, Genesis chapter 1, and God the Son, fully God, became incarnate, which is infleshed, took on human form, and took on a fully human nature. So when we talk about Jesus, we understand him as fully God. And fully man. You with me? I know I was a little theological nerd deep dive, but it's important. Here's why. Jesus, right here, according to his humanity, is in agony. In the same way he is hungry and he is tired, right here, he is in agony. He's showing weakness and limitations of humanity in his humanity. And yet. He surrenders His human will to the divine will of the triune Godhead. So even in His agony, He is in perfect, sinless submission to the Father. You see, part of what made it terrifying is that Jesus knew He did not deserve one drop of God's wrath. Not one. Because He was without sin. He was the sinless one the righteous one, and yet all the wrath of God for sin that should be mine and should be yours, we filled that cup up, and Jesus is like, I'm going to drink that. That's why I phrased it the way that I did. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath so that you and I get to drink the cup of kindness And now, instead of you and I drinking the cup of God's wrath, if we have faith in Christ Jesus, then you and I get to drink the cup of joy at His table. He actually pours us the wine of gladness, and we get to drink from that cup. We deserve the cup of wrath, but because Jesus drinks every last drop of it, there's no more left for us what is poured out for us isn't wrath but joy and mercy and grace and glory so i want to challenge us a little bit as we as we consider the reality of this this morning two challenges here if you do not have faith in jesus then the reality of the cup of god's wrath is still yours to drink god is righteous he doesn't let sin and wickedness slide And it's almost funny, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but just if you want to, how many of you, upon sinning, have been almost immediately struck by lightning? Anybody? Okay, one person. I believe you, brother. Because that's about right. The statistics probably bear that out in a room of, I don't know, 200 and some odd people that are here this morning, right? Sometimes there are immediate consequences for sin, and we're like, Are you trying to get my attention, Lord? But most of the time, most of the time, God in his patience allows us to just fill a little bit more of that cup up. He's not letting it slide. It's just getting poured into the cup. God in his patience allows us to fill the cup until either in this life or at the final judgment, that cup will be poured out. Revelation 14 describes it like this, the winepress of the wrath of God will be filled up and trampled down, and not wine, Revelation 14 says, not wine, but blood will pour out from the winepress on the wicked. They have to drink from the cup of God's judgment, unless you trust that Christ drank the cup for you. That's repentance and faith in Jesus. So that's the first thing to consider. The second thing is this. Brothers and sisters in the room, let me just challenge you with this, that when it comes to considering the body and blood of Jesus broken and shed for you, the bread and the cup, which we will in just a few moments take together in communion. When we come to the Lord's table, we often remember that Christ died for our sins and that is good We need to remember that. But maybe with fresh consideration this morning, consider, think about the fact that He didn't only die for our sin, but He absorbed and drank every drop of God's righteous anger that should be mine, and it should be yours. Jesus takes all that. He drinks the cup of God's wrath for sin so you and I can drink a cup of kindness and eternal joy. That's... That's gospel. (laughs) That's indicative. That's the work of Christ on our behalf. Before we will be able to understand and follow what Jesus says to His disciples, which is coming next as He's challenging them and instructing them on, this is how to pray, this is how to walk in this, He reminds them, reminds us, of what He's already done. Jesus says all of this in the context of, of prayer, which leads to our second point this morning, the other part of our passage. Jesus prays so that we can pray. Look at verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Again, perfect submission to the Father. Keep reading. Verse 43. And there appeared to him, to Jesus, an angel from heaven... That strengthened him. And being, <clears throat> excuse me, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to whether or not these two verses are original to Luke's gospel. Were they added later? Some manuscripts have them, some do not. I- I'm just gonna take a position on them and say I think they're original, and here's why. At the time of Luke's writing, There was much more emphasis on defending the full deity of Jesus. So from just a strict like argument or logical standpoint, there's no reason why a scribe would add weakness back into Jesus at that point in time. It would make him look more human, which is something they were trying to be really clear on, his divinity. But more importantly than that, this is is very consistent with both Luke's writing His own words, and with the life and ministry of Jesus. This is not the first time we see weakness on display in God the Son or the first time we see supernatural angelic support. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is baptized by John in the river and is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. And Satan's whole temptation is to draw Jesus away from his mission. To help him be content with the world, rather than seeing what's to come. But Jesus preaches the word of God to Satan, defeats that temptation, and afterwards, Matthew tells us, angels come and attend to Jesus. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know what ministering to Jesus looked like in that moment. But angelic messengers came From heaven and ministered to Jesus in his human weakness. So, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and here at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus just displays, shows the weakness of his human nature, and in both instances, turns away from temptation and turns to the Father in submission, trusting in the goodness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Both instances. And notice what he says to his disciples. He tells them to pray for a very specific thing. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. Part of what I think is happening here is there's a little reminder. There's a little don't forget. Don't forget what I just told you. That the road in front of you is going to be hard. (laughs) Don't forget what I just said to Peter. That Satan is trying to sift you, but I've prayed for you. Jesus is praying for the fulfillment of the Father's will, and he's been praying that for them the whole time. John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, that they would be one, that they would remain faithful, that they would persevere, and Jesus also prays for all those who would believe in me because of them, which is you. Jesus' prayer is both confident in the fulfillment of the will of God and he is sure that the glory is coming. He's sure of it. And this is how Jesus can acknowledge his weakness in the flesh according to his human nature. It's how he can submit his human will to the divine will that he shares with the Father. And then, it's tiny, but look at verse 45. And then he rose from prayer. It's real small. Jesus gets up. He gets up. Luke tells us that the agony of what Jesus is, is feeling here is so intense. He's praying and pleading with the Father with such intensity that physically what is happening in his body is that capillaries are breaking because of stress underneath the skin in his face. And so blood is pooling in his sweat glands. And as he sweats, blood and sweat are both coming out. Sorry if that's gross for you this morning. I should have warned you. But that's what's happening. It is so incredibly physically in stressful. That's what's happening to Jesus here. And what does he do? He gets up. Jesus' prayer is both dependent and triumphant. It's both. And that's how I want, us to, cha- I want to challenge us to think about Jesus' instructions for us to pray. He's talking to his disciples, but he's talking to us dependent and triumphant prayer. Now, there's lots of things we could say about prayer, but let me just touch on a couple of things from this passage. Look at what he says in verse 40, and then again in verse 46. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says it twice. It bookends, if you will, all of what happens. That's his instruction. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation. There's lots of things that Jesus could have told them to pray for. Pray that you'd be faithful. Pray that you'd be bold. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Recognize your weakness and your limitations and pray that God would meet your deep need to strengthen you against temptation. Jesus says, wait here and pray, but when he comes back, he finds them not praying, but sleeping. Luke only records one back and forth, but Matthew's account says Jesus came back in that window a couple of times, and each time found them asleep. And in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus says the same thing that we read here in Luke. Pray that you do not enter temptation." Look at verse 45. He came, rose from prayer when he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Now that's an important little descriptor for us. It's not just that they were tired. We've all had long days where we can't keep our eyes open. We're trying to watch the movie or have the conversation or, you know, we're on the road trip and we're like, maybe I should pull off in a rest area, right? Where you're just tired. That's not this. This is more than tired, These men from the time of their childhood would have expected to stay up late or all through the night for the Passover. This is something else. They were emotionally overwhelmed. Sleeping for sorrow means they were defeated, which is often how we feel when confronted with our own limitations, don't we? We feel weak, we feel limited, we feel defeated. We can't reach our goal. We work so hard and we still can't do the dang pull up. We all feel that. We all feel it. And even if we do reach it, we still realize man, I am still so limited. The flesh is so weak. But hear me do not let the reality of your need make you fatalistic and cynical. A right view of our human weakness should not defeat us, but should keep us dependent. It's a right view of self. As I think Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it's thinking of yourselves less, right? We don't need to make ourselves feel worse in order to knock ourselves down a peg, we just need to uh, succumb to the reality and agree with it that we are limited, and that's okay. It means we're dependent In this case, dependent on God. But hear me. There are lots of things that keep us from dependent prayer. You know that. I know it. Busyness keeps us from dependent prayer. A lack of belief that God will actually do something in response to our requests. Keep us from dependent prayer. Trusting in self or in something else more than trusting in God, which really is just pride, the false belief that we're not actually needy. And I think Jesus draws out a deep truth here, that we are indeed dependent on the present power of the Spirit of God to strengthen us. We're needy. And because we are not defeatist, but we're called to be dependent in prayer, the other part is also true. We can pray with confidence. We can pray triumphant prayers. We can get up. John chapter 12, Jesus says this, he goes, now is my soul troubled? This is Jesus speaking. What shall I say? Jesus says, father, save me from this hour, like take me away from this. Jesus says, no, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. When Jesus says, Not my will, but yours be done, and he stands up, I think Jesus is looking through the cross. He's looking through and past the cup, and he sees before him the joy of eternal glory on the horizon. He knows what he has to get through to get there. And so he rises, standing victorious and triumphant over weakness, over temptation, over human weakness, and He will soon stand triumphant over death itself. And so when Jesus is encouraging His disciples to pray, He's encouraging them to dependent and triumphant prayer. That's the takeaway for us. So when it comes to prayer, let me ask you, which one of those two realities is more of a challenge for you? Do you struggle in independence? Is that your wrestle? Like it often is mine? That your first move isn't to your knees, but it's to your own hands? Does busyness demand the first fruits of your time and your energy? Or does your schedule submit to the sovereignty of God? Do you go to prayer first, or as a last resort? Is your struggle dependence? Or maybe that's actually not your wrestle, it's the the other end of the spectrum. Is it actually triumphant? (laughs) Do you tend to be defeated more than victorious? Are you overwhelmed by worry and anxiety? Because burdens and doubts aren't inherently bad things, but they should drive us back to dependence on the Spirit's strength, so that we might find fresh victory in Christ. I think for me, it's probably a little of both. I tend to go first to my own hands. I can figure it out, and I tend to go to my knees second. And the victory that is in Christ is often overshadowed for me by the tiny cynic that still lives inside that I'm trying desperately to murder. But he still lives there. He's sometimes very loud. I have to fight that inner cynic. So for me, it's the practice of putting to death the old man and putting on what is already mine in Christ. So you and I, as God's people together, and as a church, we are being called, I think, in a passage like this, to more dependent and more triumphant prayer. And by God's grace, I, I think we can grow in this a couple other scriptural takeaways for us so that the Holy Spirit might might help us grow here. So we might actually grow in dependent and triumphant prayer. Here's here's the first one that stood out to me this week. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that it's the Holy Spirit that helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us. And then a little further in Romans 8, we're reminded that Jesus, who died and rose again, who is seated at the right hand of the Father is right now interceding on our behalf, literally pleading His own blood for His beloved. So, both the Son and the Spirit are interceding for us if we are in Christ. And if this is true, which it is, then I think we can pray with confidence. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, Stop there for a second. Don't miss the connection here. Because of what Christ has already done, you and I can run and pray with endurance and confidence. And we look to Jesus, who is both the author, the one who initiates it, and the finisher, the one who completes it, our faith. He begins it and brings it all the way home. All the way to the end. And for the joy that was in front of him, He stood up from his prayers, endured the cross, put down the shame of death, and stood in victory. Hebrews 12 continues, by the way, verse 3. In light of this, verse 3, Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you, speaking to us, may not grow weary or faint-hearted, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, this isn't meant to shame anybody, but it does sound just the smallest bit like a child who's experienced something hard and the firm and loving exhortation of a parent. But did you die? Doesn't it? I don't want to cheapen the word of God, but but it has a feel to it, right? No blood, no foul. You're good. You haven't struggled until you've bled is essentially what Hebrews 12 is telling us. That's not to say that we don't bleed. We absolutely take shots all the time and we bleed. Cancer, divorce, brokenness, heartache, temptation, even death itself. All the effects of sin on humanity and on creation. It's not to say they aren't a struggle. They are because Back at the beginning, we are finite. We will bleed. But there's hope here. And this is what Hebrews is getting at and what I think Jesus is getting at when he gets up from the prayer with uh, with his disciples. Consider the suffering of Jesus, who endured temptation, who agonized over the reality of suffering under God's wrath. We struggle to be sure, but in Christ, we are assured that in every one of our struggles, in everything that we will suffer in this life, we know that we will never struggle under God's wrath. That is not a cup in Christ we will ever have to drink. which maybe, and I say this the most kind and shepherding way I can, maybe puts all of our suffering and our bleeding in a context, in a perspective that keeps us from being destroyed and might actually allow us to rejoice in it. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so that you and I can drink from the cup of kindness and say even through tears, death, what's that? You got nothing. And Jesus prays so that we can pray both dependent and triumphant prayers. And so we join Jesus in praying. Bold prayers of faith because Jesus is victorious and his life is our life. So we ask and plead by faith, trusting that he hears us. And we join Jesus in saying, not my will, but yours be done. Both of these are true. Both of these are true. And so we live between the bookends of these two truths. We sang one of them earlier. We're going to sing another one here in a moment. Praise the Savior, He has won. Our sin defeated, past tense, through His blood. We sang that. We believe that. And in just a moment, we're going to sing the words of a hymn penned by Charlotte Elliott who wrote this. Though dark my path and sad my lot. Let me be still and murmur not, or breathe the prayer divinely taught, thy will be done. So we can admit without blushing, without argument, without concession, we can admit the flesh is weak, but Jesus overcomes. And if we are in him, then we overcome. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess we are weak. We confess our need to you because you indeed have the words of eternal life. We pray along with what you've given us to pray that you would keep us from temptation. That you'd continue to teach us to pray like you taught your disciples to pray. To confess the Father as our Father, to declare holy, holy is your name, to ask in dependent faith that you'd provide for our every need, give us our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from all evil and that you'd receive the glory and the power forever. Father, help us, even this morning, to consider not just what you endured for sin, but that you drank down to the dregs. You took every last drop of God's righteous anger on our behalf, so that we might receive grace. Refresh and restore your church this morning through the Lord's Supper, we pray. Amen.